who we are. We walk down the halls like we are coming to beat you up. Even the teachers move out of the way. No one wants to catch an elbow in their ribs or a foot in their stride. They look away when we pass or take a turn down a hallway where we are not. We will make them into a joke anyway. Something about their face or their clothes or their name. We decide who they are. When we go to lunch, we take up three tables. We need only two. Nobody will ask us to move. We sign up for the same classes, the easy ones. The white kids want the advanced placement classes. They make you take tests to get into them. Tests we never have liked. We don't like teachers either. They tell us what to do. We don't let anybody tell us what to do. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, March 4th, 2019, and we are well into our March lineup of Tree Fork shows now. Tree Fork, you say? The Tree Fork Music Fest is a five-day music and culture festival which is held at numerous venues throughout beautiful downtown Boise, Idaho, March 20th through 24th. More information and tickets can be found at treefortmusicfest.com. The story of Treefort 2019 here at 42 Minutes ended up being Storyfort, which is always my favorite. But this year is a particularly strong lineup, and I'm happy to be speaking with several of the appearing artists. Today, that means we are traveling to D.C. by way of Las Cruces, New Mexico, to consider Camille Acker's Training School for Negro Girls, published last October by the Feminist Press. When you are black and female in America, society's rules were never meant to make you safe or free. Camille Acker's relatable yet unexpected characters break down the walls of respectability politics, showing that the only way for black women to be free is to be themselves. Camille grew up in Washington, D.C. and holds a B.A. in English from Howard University and an M.F.A. in Creative Writing from New Mexico State University. Her writing has received support from the Norman Mailer Writers Colony, Callaloo Writers Workshop, and many others. She was a fiction co-editor for Dismantle, an anthology from the Vona Voices Workshop, and in 2015 she helped co-found The Spinsters Union, a digital content site by and for women. She has worked for social justice nonprofits and taught in a variety of educational spaces, including Chicago Writer Studio and University of Illinois at Chicago. Her writing has appeared in or is forthcoming from Hazlitt, Splinter, Vice, Dame Magazine, Fandor, and New City, among others. She is currently a visiting assistant professor in fiction for the creative writing program at New Mexico State University. More information about her can be found at her website, CamilleAcker.com. She will be appearing at Treefort on Friday, March 22nd at 4 p.m. at the Storyfort Fiction Showcase at Woodland Empire, as well as Sunday, March 24th at 3 p.m. at the Owyhee. It really is an honor to be welcoming Camille to the program. How are you doing today, Camille? I'm good, Doug. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I'm really happy to have found you. And usually Treefort kind of does this. It's it's a festival of discovery in a lot of ways. Every year the bands are brand new. Um, it's um, and so I'm I'm really pleased because you 
your writing is so amazing. Um, my Thank first you. question is, is mambo sauce a real thing? It is. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a sauce that, um, you know, often will go on chicken, um, but also people will, you know, put fries, uh, put their fries in it. Um, it's sort of a, a, a DC delicacy. <laughs> and is it unique to DC? It is. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think like, uh, many things that sort of get into, um, you know, culture that, um, people don't always know the exact origins of it. So I think that's disputed a bit about, you know, who exactly first came up with mambo sauce and what place first served it. But, um, but it is one of those things that if you go to, um, you know, like a carry out in, in DC, um, that they'll have it. And it's become also sort of more, um, I don't know, more of a, of a hipster thing too in the last few years. So there are places now that have like, you know, fancier bottled versions of mambo sauce too. Well, mambo sauce was also, uh, so your, your collection is divided into two sections and it's like, uh, is it called the lower, it's kind of right. like grade school and high school kind of, or, Explain that a little bit. Yes, yeah. So I uh, I divided the book into the lower school and the upper school. Um, and part of it was uh, an organizing technique uh, for my own benefit when I was writing a collection uh, because I knew that I wanted to have characters who were a range of ages. And so I wanted there to be stories about um, young black women, um, you know, young girls who were under 18, and then also to have stories about black women. And so I did the lower school for those uh, black girls, and then the upper school was stories that center on black women. Well, so I, we were talking about Mambo Sauce, so maybe we'll just start there. I really appreciated how, uh, how our empathies changed throughout that story, where I think, I don't know if, if this is purposeful on your part, but you kind of identify with various people at different times, but then uh, you both agree with them and, you know, have empathy for them, but then disagree because of their actions. And so, uh, let's see, uh, is is her name Constance in that story? That's right, yes. And and her her white boyfriend is Brian? Or That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because a lot of times people want uh, like a right answer. Um, right. But life never works out that way. <laughs> true. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I know. I it was purposeful for um, your allegiances to shift in that story. I I think you know at the beginning you. Um, are rooting for Constance, you know, and there are, are moments when um, she feels like she's right, you know, what, what she's saying um, moments in her relationship or when Brian, um, when she meets Brian's friends, you know, where you might sort of identify more with Constance, but then there are ways, you know, later in the story where she's making decisions really that are, are based on, how she thinks, right? But not um, not thinking about how other people, um, what they really need and what's important to them. 
I mean, that story is about gentrification, which I think in that same way can have sort of layers of ways that people feel about it, um, where gentrification can bring better services to a place, but then also as um, rents go up or, you know, what, what has to leave, what stores leave, what people can't live there anymore, what kinds of things you lose about a neighborhood when it goes through that sort of change. And, um, and so I, I wanted to sort of have that kind of same feeling towards the characters in that story. Yeah, you even noted that. So the boarded up building that is will eventually get torn down is beautiful after the first snowfall. You know, it's like there is right <laughs> beauty there. It's just you have to you yeah. have to see it for what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this story actually made me think about something that I've been thinking about. So a writer, I mean, it's their job to explore a subject and just to uh, sometimes throw caution to the wind and just try and get into different people's heads. But, uh, you know, as as our culture becomes more conscious of our historical past or, you know, just sophisticated enough to understand that some stories are not our stories to tell, you know, I, I wonder about, uh, you know, that line. So, uh your characters are, are black women, you know, you're telling those stories, but you know, what do you, what do you think of that when, um, like, especially it happens in Hollywood where white directors are telling a black story, you know, right. or, or even the movie Roma, I guess, was kind of like that, you know? And, and so I guess I thought about that because, right. you know, you're writing, you're writing Brian, which is not a main character, but you know, it's like, this is as a writer, Anyway, go ahead and talk about that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and I think that that is certainly, um, you know, a navigation, you know, for every writer. And, you know, I think uh, sometimes we can often talk about writing someone's story um, who's, say, like of a different race or ethnicity. But, I mean, you mentioned Roma, you know, writing across class, too. Yeah. Um, you know, is something that you know, if, if you have not personally experienced, right, being, you know, a particular race or gender or, you know, or having a disability, right, or being from a different class, um, how do you write that character? And, I, you know, I think I always try to start from a place of empathy. Um, I, you know, it's, I think it's really important for us to have tenderness and affection for characters even if um, those characters are, you know, making bad choices or, or doing things that we don't, you know, necessarily like. And so I always want to start there of, you know, finding that connection that we could have to someone else because of um, feelings, right? Because of um, you know, knowing what it is to to love someone and worry that they don't love us back as much, you know, like, how can we sort of start with some of those places? But I think it is always important to also think about um, how can I get to know more about this character if their experience is outside of my own? And so, you know, I think sometimes that has been for me having, um, you know, people who are 
from that identity read my work and be able to challenge me and say, well, I don't know if this is how this person would, would do this or think, you know, or, um, and then to go back and, and redraft, you know, and, and really um, try to be led as much by the character as I can, rather than, you know, simply my own inclinations about who I think they should be. I've been thinking about books from an interesting point of view as almost like time machines so that um, there's mm. there's something interesting that a book allow and this is not necessarily a short story though but like a, a novel it you are able to travel back into a different point of time and so you're not necessarily not necessarily taking on that time's ideology, but you can you can kind of experience the ideology through the lens of the author, uh, the author, however their biases are 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 there. And so I'm thinking about like uh, uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, where you know even mm -hmm. though he's a fairly progressive-minded author, you could still see like the mores of the '90s in there about his thoughts about women or race and things like that. Um, right. Right. It's, it's it and so i guess i'm thinking about that in terms of of your own writing um in your ability to uh like capture these different little moments in such detailed way i wonder um like do you have notes and notes from your childhood or you know you, so it, <laughs> it, it just seems like you're able to uh to bring to life these you know, these moments from the past where, like, it's a world that I recognize because I was in that, in that world, but like, not the, not necessarily this, you know, it, it's the same, the same moment we're sharing. It's just different, different rooms, I guess. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have sort of copious notes from my childhood. I mean, I, I sort of was always, um, there were different moments in, in my childhood when I journaled, right? So there's some ways that, you know, I know I've, over the years, have sort of looked at, you know, some of those things. But I think, you know, mostly really in writing the collection, it was still sort of uh, tapping into that emotional place. And, you know, certainly sometimes, I mean, my parents still live in, in D.C., so I still, you know, go there fairly frequently. So there is something, too, that can you know, kind of happen when you're in a place that can sort of trigger that, those emotions as well. Um, but DC has changed a lot um, in the last decade, especially, um, and definitely since, you know, I grew up there and even went to Howard there. So, yeah, it was really more sort of tapping into, um, I'm, you know, remembering how I felt in high school, you know, to write um, who we are, um, you know, what you read a, a section of at the beginning. And just thinking about that navigation, which I think happens throughout our lives of how, how do we get to be the people we're meant to be? And when do we um, hide who we are? Um, and when do we find ways to be more fully who we are and how do our families contribute to that and how does um, who we are in the world and how society and culture views us, you know, contribute to, to how much we are ourselves or not. Um, I, I just, I tried to sort of write from that place. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> so I, I hope that it sounds like it maybe comes across. So that's that's good. Well, yeah. So it, it's it's really fascinating to me. So uh, let's see which story. Maybe it's strongmen is the story. But so Ronnie, mm -hmm. Ronnie doesn't want to go to college, even though his father wants him to go to college. You know, you know, his father mm -hmm. has ideas about who Ronnie should be, and then Ronnie says, you know. You know, the one time I went to California and there was mist on my knees and it was too cold and, you know, I only got to bring one pair of shorts, I would have never been able to find that in books. You know, I need to go and experience the world. The interesting thing to me is that <laughs> you are able to convey that in a book. And so, like, I felt like, you know, so it's it's really an interesting contradiction that you set up there because, uh, you know, I think you can find it in books. Right. Right. Yes, uh, certainly. Um, and, and I think that, um, I mean, I think that's also Ronnie's navigation about who he is, you know, which at that moment feels like that isn't a thing that he, um, you know, that he sort of hasn't seen enough of the world that, um, you know, perhaps in a different way, like a book is enough for him. But I absolutely agree, you know, that books can create that world for us and I mean that's certainly why you know I've, I, I've loved them I've you know wanted to be a writer because I could see how um how powerful words could be you know how much they can evoke in us and can feel as real as you know actually being in a place um I think you know just for Ronnie he well, he wants to be in a different place, one. You know, he knows that um, that moment for him of staying in D.C. is, is not going to lead him down the best road. And so he also is just looking, I think, to be, to be in a place where he can be different and that he can't be different in D.C. Well, so let's talk about short stories a little bit. Yeah. I, it doesn't seem like... For whatever reason, it really feels like the novel has kind of taken the center stage, and that's what writers do these days. But short stories are such yeah. an interesting form to me because in so little time and space, they evoke this whole thing that you're just kind of in. It's And it, there's more of a, you know, I don't know what it is, but it, it's so fascinating because they're they're perfect for like a, a, a class or something because you can you can really enter into the world and, 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 you know, deal with it in, in a shorter amount of time. You know, what is your relationship to the short story and why do you think uh, they're not necessarily as popular as they have been in the past? Yeah, I, I love the short story. Um, I, I am working on a novel, but I also fully, you know, intend to, to return the short stories after, after I finish um, this next book. Yeah, I, you know, I think that um, short stories can do, like, in some ways more what, like, a, a poem might do or um, a song, um, where I think you can sort of get that, like, height, you know, of emotion, as you're saying, like, in a short time, you know, in a compact way. And I mean, I certainly, I, you know, there are novels I love, you know, I, I understand the appeal of the novel. I mean, I, I think it's that um, immersion, you know, complete immersion into another world. 
where um, probably one of the things I most hear from people about the collection, you know, they'll say that they, you know, really enjoyed it, but they said, I just wanted more. And I, I think there's this, um, you know, that novel sort of feels like it gives us this more complete experience. I think that's what people associate it with, right? And that if you're reading a shorter piece that it kind of can't give you the complete experience. But I don't, I don't think that's true. You know, I think, I think uh, a well-done short story can leave you as satisfied as, as a longer piece can. And yeah, I mean, I think this like um, desire for um, that bigger thing or you know, conquering this bigger question in the novel is, is part of why people are so captivated by it. But I don't know, you know, there's been some really good short story collections in the last few years that have, you know, gone up for the National Book Award and, and you know, really um, done some some great work. So I, I think this, I think the short story collection is doing okay, you know, and I, and I hope that it, it sort of keeps thriving in that way. Well, so the interesting thing to me with the short story, every single word really counts. Like, you, you can't have right. superfluous stuff. It's just you're trimming it down to everything that's vital. What is what is your writing process like? Do you draft quickly and then rewrite a bunch, or do you get it all out the first time? Yeah, so I might, it can really vary. I, sometimes I um, can write a fast draft. Um, one of the stories, All the Things You'll Never Do, I wrote the first draft of that story in like three hours because her voice was just that strong, the, the central character best. And so it really just came all out sort of in one, one fell swoop. And then like with that story, I certainly went back and revised. I sort of rearranged some of the parts um, at one point. And um, so that story sort of came quickly initially and then I did you know revisions and then some other stories took a lot longer you know where I I knew there was this one thing that I was interested in you know maybe a particular character a particular instance or a line even and then it took me a little while to navigate um, maybe a fifth or sixth draft even what actually the story wanted to be um, and then once I got there, then I could, you know, redraft and redraft, you know, doing exactly what you're saying, like, okay, I have to cut this line, you know, I need to cut this paragraph. And doing the um, edits for the collection report was published, there were a couple of stories that I had subplots that got cut, you know, where it sort of said, okay, what is the story really concerned with? And if that subplot isn't helping us to, you know, arrive at what the story is really trying to do, then, you know, it needs to go. So, yeah, that's usually I, I'm, I suppose, mostly I end up having sort of faster drafts and then doing a lot of revising. Um, I've sometimes dreamed of being that writer who just, like, doesn't put down the word until it's the perfect word. Um, because sometimes I think those writers end up having like these really gorgeous, gorgeous sentences. Um, but it's just, it's not kind of the way that my, my brain works. So I need to kind of get the story out and then I can, and then I can take a look at it again. 
And so how long do you, you feel like you work on a story for? Is it really very? Yeah, it does vary. I, I mean, sometimes I, um, like, I would say in some ways to get to what ended up being pretty close to the final draft of All the Things You'll Never Do was probably maybe two months of working on it. But some of the stories, um, I mean, I wrote the entire collection in about the span of a year. But then there was about five more years that um, I was sort of reworking it. And certainly not five years constantly, you know, but I would sort of go, um, you know, return to a story, revise it and work on it, you know, leave the collection, come back to it. Um, and so some of those stories, yeah, I mean, I didn't arrive at the, you know, pretty final version until over the course of four years, you know. And I think some of that is also... Um, I think for some of those stories, I wasn't yet the writer I had to be to finish it. Um, so when I started the story, I was maybe like, I'm kind of interested in this thing, but I, but again, didn't quite know what the story was until later. And then when I left it, some of those stories alone for a while, when I came back to it, I could say, oh, oh, this is what this story needs to do. Um, and then I could finish revising it. There's something in... I don't know that I've read enough short stories to really be able to like have an opinion, but there's like a classic quality I want you. So th the fact that your, your short stories are so like dense with detail, but then there's the, a, a large kind of a constellation of characters around all the main characters. There's this kind of, you know, classic feel to them. I'm wondering who, you know, who you, read and have read and inspire you to uh inform your work yeah i um so one uh, writer who was especially instrumental in writing short stories and especially writing stories about dc um is edward p jones um my father gave me his first short story collection lost in the city um which are all stories set in dc um when i was 16 and i remember reading it loving the stories and also loving that I could see what felt like people I knew in those stories, um, in places, you know, that I was familiar with. And so that um, collection and, you know, his other work has definitely been really important, you know, to, to my own development as a writer. Toni Morrison in the novel like Sula, it's also really was a touchstone for me. Um, of exploring like the intimacy of, of women's relationships. And then there's other short story writers who I also love to like Lori Moore or uh, Shunto Lahiri, um, Alice Monroe, um, Tony K. Bambara. All of them are short story writers whose work I, I loved um, and uh, still, you know, return to for, for inspiration, um, especially if I'm teaching stories too. What about your characters? Do you know as much as the reader knows, or do you know a considerable amount more? Um, you know, actually, I think in some ways I know as much as the reader does. Um, I, I've I've had some people, you know, ask me with some of the stories, like, so what, you know, what do you think happens after, you know, like after the story ends? 
And I told him, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not, I, there may be some inclinations that I might have about what else happens, you know, beyond the, the pages that I've written about a character. But um, there's some ways that they're, they're a mystery to me too. I mean, I suppose, you know, there's ways I know them better because I've lived with them longer, you know. And, and there are, you know, ways I'm sure that, like, I, what I think about their motivations or, um, you know, their instincts um, are more developed, you know, than the readers might be about how they see them. But there's also real ways that I, there are things I don't know about them. You know, I, I, I definitely don't feel like I know everything about those characters. And there's a way that I like that because I, I feel like then it sort of makes it, um, you know, as I've been revising and as I, you know, read the book and do events for the book, um, there's ways that it still feels like a mystery or, you know, a discovery for me um, when I go into the, the world of these characters. So in the introduction, I read from the, the f- first piece in the book, um, I've been thinking about, so based on the details of some of the childhood scenes in your book, I'm guessing like uh, Janet Jackson control this kind of stuff. And some right. of the, the musical artists, you, I have a feeling roughly the same age, but I've been thinking about, uh, so the attitude of the, the kids in that first story, you know, this kind of, um, we don't like people telling us what to do. And I've been thinking about like the generation before generation X and mm. how it's interesting because I I guess I've never thought about it. There was there's something, uh, there was like a lawlessness in there. You know, like it's the the previous generation and like hazing and the kind of high school rituals and graffiti and you could kind of see it like in uh, defaced textbooks and things like of this nature and and just like petty theft and how that was just kind of a, a common thing. If you knew you weren't going to get caught, have you have you thought about that at all? Well, you know, I think um, I mean I, I do see those kids, you know, those girls that sort of like lawless in some ways, right? But I but I think um, in I feel like this thing that perhaps you're getting to about the rebellious nature of it. You know, the the rebellion of it more than, like, these kids are really committing crimes. And and, and I think that that um, instinct of those kids is similar to, you know, instincts that sort of anyone has when they're a young person of, like, not feeling powerful in the world. And so how can you exercise your power in some way, you know, even if it's, like, you know, writing in a textbook you're not supposed to or cutting class. And so I see those girls, you know, being that, you know, of like, how can I um, find some way to be powerful in the world, even though, you know, I'm young and I'm female and I'm black and there's ways that the world is telling me I I have no power whatsoever. Um, But you know, in these smaller ways, is can I push back against that? And I definitely got that from from your opening piece, "Who We Are." Where yeah. so th- your book is called Training School. You know, so 
these young black girls are being trained, uh, you know, well, what are they being trained for, I guess, is the question. Yeah, well, I think, uh, so that's one thing. I, I um, The title really comes out of um, this moment in the early 1900s where there were training schools in different parts of the country where often, you know, black educators were trying to educate other black people. And some of those courses at those schools would be, you know, sort of what we would typically think about, like for high school or, or college classes, but then other things would also be about like how to do domestic work better. And so I started thinking a lot about um, how we get trained by society, you know, by the culture around us to be a particular kind of person, um, especially as it, where that intersects with, with race and gender. And so I was thinking a lot about that, you know, and I think, I think in various ways we're all trained, you know, we can be trained by our family, um, you know, to go to a particular place to work a particular job, right? And so I think that's sort of all of these characters are trying to figure out, um, you know, get themselves out of kind of the strictures of the world that they're in, you know, to be not who someone expects them to be, but to be who they actually are. Yeah. And so a piece, I think that, you know, maybe it's the title story in the collection where yeah. uh, there is, you know, it's, it's uh, thinly veiled white aspiration. So that they want the, the training school is called Toby and Tanya. Is that right? Toby and Tiffany. Toby and Tiffany. Yes. Yeah. And, and the social club. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's really kind of tongue in cheek at, you know, at the same time, cause it's, 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 uh, you know, at the, at the swanky party, they ran out of arugula bites, and then they were going to serve, like, collard green bites. You know, that, that's a joke, right? Yes, yes. Yes, <laughs> right. And then uh, I, I can't think of the kind of the gatekeeper lady's name, but... Shelby. Know, Shelby, and her husband mm-hmm. is dancing, and, and it's, so it's really interesting about, like, the, the hierarchy of... Uh, you know, how do you even say that? Where, where the husband is so excited that the the other woman is is like dark, you know, and uh, exhibiting more black culture, where his own wife, his own wife is is um, like lightning or skin almost. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, there's definitely some colorism, you know, at, at play in that story, you know. It is also, you know, definitely making light of a lot of those things, um, you know, yes. take a satirical um, look at, you know, I think this idea of like, there's, there's all of these sorts of structures, you know, that are, um, that surround us, right? So, um, and I think, you know, especially when we think about like, being middle class and, you know, what it means to earn a particular kind of, you know, salary or live in a particular place or drive a particular kind of car, you know, that we can all get caught up in what that means and be more invested in um, having those things, right. And being able to say we belong to a particular group, you know, rather than really thinking about like, 
I mean, I think, you know, both those women want to um, be in a particular, you know, place in their in class in D.C., but they're also trapped. You know, they're, they've also sort of created this world where, again, they can't be themselves, you know, even though they're aspiring to, to this particular, um, you know, elitism. So, yeah, you know, I think that story is, is trying to, to think about a lot of those things. Um, and how, yeah, how problematic some of those aspirations can be and, and what it means about what we do and what we do as a people to be able to, to achieve those kind of, that kind of status. Well, I mean, so, you know, the reality is for parents that they do want the best for their kids and they want their kids to have every opportunity they can have to be successful. And so that's why Ronnie's father behaved the way he did, you know, he wanted his son to have a life that he didn't have, or that right. he would have more opportunity than he had. And so it's interesting, because something, I guess, an acronym I didn't know, but I was able to figure out was HBCU. Um, is Howard an HBCU? It is, yes, yes. Historically Black College. Yeah, colleges and universities, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the two ladies in in that training school story they or maybe it wasn't the two no i i'm confusing some of the stories now but yeah, but yeah. you know they they talked about the the different no i've got i've got it all confused <laughs> no, maybe no, they were talking about right. ivies right. no they, Are there, they were they were talking about sort of again like a, a hierarchical <laughs> thinking about it you know like that that Ivy League schools are the best, right? And that um, oh, you went to a state college. Oh, yeah, we're not yes, and exactly. So that's exactly yes, yes. So, but they do yes. They talk about um, HBCUs, about you know the, the ones that they consider to be good, um, you know, versus some other place that you would have gone to college. So yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, so we're we're starting to wind down. You said you're working on a novel now. I am, yes, um, and it's a, it's a definitely, it's a different creature, you know, than the short story, so um, I always say that, uh, I feel like, you know, writing is this process of um, being in the dark, and I think with a short story, you know, you're in the dark, and you're sort of feeling around, and it's like, oh, there's a chair, there's a table, and you can sort of start to to figure out where you are. Um, and the novel feels to me like still in a dark room, but now it's like a mansion, you know, and there's a lot of room um, to get to. So um, it's exciting in some ways and it's, it's also daunting. Um, so I'm working away though. Well, so I, I guess I keep coming back to this moment from last year. And so I wonder maybe you might have a, an interesting perspective on it because um, growing up in DC, you know, is the politics just kind of just kind of the background, or is it so? Anyway, uh, the the Kavanaugh hearing really kind of was this strange echo for me because um, you know in 1991 there was a really similar thing with the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, right? Um, you know, as as a in DC, is it the same experience? You know, for the rest of the country, where you're just experiencing these things on TV, or is there is there more immediacy because you're right there? And then, you know, what what did you make of 
you know, this moment that we went through last year with Christine Blasey Ford and, and that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, so, well, to answer the, the first question, I, um, in some ways, it does feel like all of those things are still just on TV. I mean, you know, growing up in D.C., it was certainly that, um, you know, there would be motorcades, and so you would know, oh, someone, you know, someone important is in town, right, or the, or the president is leaving to go, you know, fly somewhere. So there were those sort of moments of interruption, but in a lot of ways, um, I would say, you know, like, I mean, I grew up in a household that was definitely concerned about um, politics and, you know, was interested in, you know, in current affairs and events. Um, and we talked a lot about those things around, you know, the dinner table in, in our house. Um, but I don't, I think that's, that's who my parents are, you know, so I think that would have been established whether we had lived in D.C. or whether, you know, we had lived in Boise. Um, so I think in that way, politics sort of felt no closer to me than in other, you know, if I had lived someplace else, even though all of that is, is a backdrop. I mean, you know, it is what I grew up with. But then there's also so many neighborhoods in D.C. that, you know, are, are not downtown or, you know, not near the White House um, that it can feel removed, um, you know, from all of that. Um, and then you get, you know, involved with sort of more what's happening in, you know, local politics and, you know, what's happening in your street and in your neighborhood, you know, like you would in any place. And, I mean, I think... What happened, you know, with uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, I thought we hadn't moved anywhere, you know, since um, since the uh, Anita Hill, you know, testimony um, about Clarence Thomas. That felt very um, disturbing, disheartening, um, you know, um, upsetting to think that once again, a woman was giving, you know, her word about what a man had done and that um, her word wasn't good enough. So, yeah, I, <laughs> um, obviously in many ways, and I think this is also part of this, you know, my collection coming out in this moment too in politics where to talk about D.C., um, you know, and, and who uh, inhabits the White House is so polarizing um, that I think it made me also want to kind of get closer to the D.C. I know, um, you know, versus uh, the D.C. that I think, you know, people um, obviously associate with, you know, the president and associate with what's going on, but that there's all this other life that's happening there you know, people just trying to navigate their lives, you know, families and, um, and that feeling of DC for me is, is the one that, that really stays with me. That's really most present. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Doug. You bet. You've been listening to Camille Acker on 42 Minutes, a production of Saint Book Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out our website at camilleacker.com. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others, as currently all the other Sync Book radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. 
and that one finger ruled the whole place. Give me a beat! Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. 